standing meditation posture. We will continue to uh, include it in the schedule once or twice in the days coming. And you're also very welcome to incorporate the posture into the other periods if you find it useful. So in a period of sitting, if it feels at a certain point your body has come to the end of its capacity to sit, you can stand up and continue practicing standing up. If you uh, find that you're struggling with drowsiness, one of the useful things that can be an option is to stand up. It's somehow harder to fall asleep when standing. Not impossible, I've been told. I've never managed it myself. Um, And likewise in the walking practice, if you find it useful just to stop and stand still, and I often do, for not just a moment at the end of one's path, but for a few moments or longer, you're very welcome to explore whatever way that might be useful or beneficial or even just in the middle of your walking path whether as a response to feeling a little sort of lost, confused or out of contact with what you're doing or just as a way of being present. So please feel free to include that form. And uh, we'll have some Q&A in just a few moments, but if you'd like to take a moment just now to stretch or move or bring some ease to your body in any way that you may like to, um, please do so. Um, Don't go too far away or away at all, in fact, unless you absolutely have to. And we'll plan to take another 30 minutes or maybe a little more for the uh, Q&A. We entitle the period questions and answers, but I think more accurately, because we may not be able to answer your questions, particularly difficult ones, um, questions and responses, because I think we'll be able to respond. Uh, That will certainly endeavour to respond in a way that we hope will be useful, but we can't guarantee that will be the case, so uh, I hope you'll bear with us. And we'll basically alternate, taking turns. If you want to ask one of us specifically a question that you want to ask, just make that part of the question. There were no but that's the case Um, and although neither of us are famed for the particular quality of brevity we will endeavour to answer more than just a few questions in the 30 or so minutes that we have so maybe if someone would like to begin What does the bowing mean, and is there a right way to do it? So the question is, what does the bowing mean, and is there a right way to do it? And So for different people, it might have a different sense. I'll just briefly say what it is for me. And it's a traditional form that one finds in different Asian countries quite commonly, and looks a little bit like what prayer looks like in Western countries, and some of them anyway. But for me, it's, a, it's an expression of appreciation, of gratitude, of respect, and of, in a way, honouring something that I value. So for me, when I bow at the end of a sitting, it's because I know what it's like to do this practice, and it's really hard work. And it's like, hey, wow, people are doing it. When I might bow to the image of the Buddha, it's expressing my respect, gratitude, and appreciation for both the individual, who was a human being, but also for the what it represents as a, uh, a possibility to bow down to the possibility of awakening. And it's 
you can do it in any number of ways, from a little sort of nod to a full bow to a whole getting down, kneeling, putting one's head on the ground, or a full body prostration where your whole body ends up flat on the ground. And none of them is right, although particular traditions will say this is the way we do it. And you can find, if you wish, if it resonates for you, what's useful, what's meaningful. Something for me about bringing my hands together in front of my heart. There's a sense of connection there for me in that, just somehow gathering that space of whatever that is. So feel free to play with it. It's absolutely not required. It's not part of the form. It's just something that some of us like to do because it has resonance and meaning and there's something in that. I think the short is, uh, we're going to say more about this in the days to come. Yeah? Um, we're not actually interested in the breath. We're interested in the sensation of the body breathing. So what you're actually having is not the air. Yeah? It's the sensation that is provoked or that accompanies the movement of in-breathing and out-breathing. So it's the somatic quality. And obviously you can meet that somatic sensation in many different ways. You can try to be very precise and specific, uh, say, size of a thumbnail or, or even more small. You know, particularly when it's in the nose, then it'll be, it is likely more small. Or you can hold that very generously, kind of, you know, almost energetically. The breath sensation is important as a starting point. Whatever you do, this sensation will change. It will become wide, it will become less physical and more energetic, it will be uh, sometimes very faint, it will be sometimes very, the rhythmical aspect will come out. Depending on where you are and what you're doing, this is likely to to change, but it's important that you establish a relationship. Yeah. That connected the seeking of a, a relationship to that experience and the seeking continuity in that experience. It's like, I guess it's like with a baby, you know, um, not very trustworthy of a man who doesn't have babies. Um, but still, I have been one, and you know, I, which may give me some justification of mentioning that. I looked after a fifteen-year, eleven-year-old brother, younger brother, very, very precisely. So, the important bit is not what you do. The important bit is that you stay in relationship to, in an attuned way. So sometimes the breath needs widening if it's tense, or sometimes. Uh, 
the space of your attentional field needs softening because it's too willful or sometimes it needs actually connecting more eagerly because it's too flimsy or things like that yes i hope this is a kind of answer and i hope we do f we will fill out some of the details in days to come yeah Yes. Do you have any uh, recommendations on how to work with or accept aversion, like particularly to unpleasant sensations? Sure. So the question about how to work with or accept aversion, particularly with regard to unpleasant sensations. And so it's not unusual in the context of meditation practice that involves sitting and not moving that much that we encounter difficult experiences that we you know, often call painful. Um, again, there's probably a lot that could be said, and we will say more as we go. Initially, I think it's great that you recognize the, that there's both the aversion, that sense of not liking, and that there's the painfulness itself, whatever's happening in the body. And being able to discern those two is already actually giving one a lot more possibilities for working with the situation. Um, in that, what I would suggest, having acknowledged it, for now, just to notice that this is aversion not needing to resolve it or, in a way, find a way to make it go away at this point. We will talk more about working with it, but initially, if you're able just to acknowledge, oh, it's aversion, it feels like this. So you kind of just know what it is, and then actually just coming back to the breathing experience and, and what's there. If it becomes persistent or ongoing in such a way that it's really not possible to do that, then what will be useful is to actually start to specifically notice where in the body do I feel the aversion. So we're still with the body, we're still using the body, and noticing, oh, actually when my knee hurts, I start to realize my shoulders tighten because I'm going, no, I don't like it. That's what happens for me. I don't know, for yourself, you'll need to see. And then, okay, can I feel? Can I be with that? So the aversion itself becomes a topic of attention. Rather than it being about the experience, which it starts off as, it becomes the experience to which we turn. Sometimes just with a, a breath or two or a little attention and a little kindness, because it's not easy when it hurts and then I don't like it. There's a possibility of finding a little more space, allowing it to soften. Um, And that's probably a good place to begin. It might be useful to tune into the out-breath a little more. Notice if there's any pushing or forcing going on in relationship to whether it's discomfort or in the sustaining of the posture. Sometimes we come to a point where the amount of pressure that's being generated in the system suggests it's wiser to make an adjustment to the posture and actually less disruptive than the amount of reactive energy that's being generated by not moving. So one can make an adjustment sometimes slowly, mindfully, sensitively if it seems like the body is under too much pressure. And one of the marks of that is the amount of aversion being generated and the contraction associated with it is beyond what I can soften or release or relax. And although there's value in working with that, it's not like you have to do that all day. And again, I think we will intend to speak some more about that. But does that feel useful as a, as a beginning response? Great, thank you.
Yes, please. So the question is, the observation that when watching the breath, that this act of watching the breath changes the breath, and uh, some frustration around this process, is that correct? And I think it's fair to admit that anything we put our attention to is likely to be changed by our act of attending. Yeah. So that seems to go with the territory. We, I guess we best divest ourselves of the notion that we can objectively watch something and leave whatever we watch untouched by our act of watching. Maybe I, I might want to question the value of watching, you know. If we speak of meditation as a relationship, watching is a very particular type of relationship. Not necessarily the most useful one. So maybe it's better to not watch that breath, but to actually feel it, inhabit it, listen to it, touch it tasted yeah so consider the relationship to your experience of breathing not just to be a visual an ocular one say observing watching witnessing would be the classic pieces so the, i'll need more time to unpack this but the experience of watching is a very different one of touching so maybe it may be useful to, for you to consider relating to your breath as a touch experience or as a listening experience rather than one watching. The listening takes us more in. The touching takes us into a deeper, tactile kind of relationship. The watching always makes us opposite something. When we watch something, something arises opposite. Yeah. And if you notice that this is, that your breath changes when being watched, just soften. Just kind of soften. Think of giving more space. Kind of widening the focus of your attentional focus. Just make make it more spacious. Just kind of as a kind of a, instead of holding it like this, you kind of hold it like this. Let it come into your hands. Use images if that helps you to connect. One of the images that helps me with the breath is kind of like feeling the weight of a bird. Yeah. You're actually trying to sense the weight of each in-breath in the palms of your hands. That's an image that helps me. Yeah. Try. I hope any, some of this helps. Um, so when my mind wanders, which it does, um, and I bring it back, am I looking for just a clean slate 
Am I looking for a totally uncluttered mind? Because sometimes I find myself focusing in on something that really deserves attention, something that maybe came up 50 years ago. And so I will dial in and go deep to that, and I actually do feel like I did good work, but then I'm feeling guilty because I was processing all kinds of thoughts. Hmm. So, <laughs> that's my question. Hmm. So the experience is, being, I think, it's being described as um, noticing that sometimes when the attention goes away, we're into thinking that where it goes seems to be fruitful and useful. And there's a question whether it's useful to engage in something that might feel reflective or beneficial in some way, um, or whether one is simply trying to just kind of keep the mind disengaged from all such things. And in a sense, there's a sort of a there's stages in the process of the meditative journey that we're engaging in, both in the context of a retreat, but also in our lives. And initially, it's a very helpful and useful training to just put things down, even if it might be really useful to engage with them. Not because they're bad or it's unskillful, but because the tendency to pick up material is so strongly developed in us. And the capacity to be able to put it down is, for many of us, less developed. And so sometimes it will happen and we won't have even realized that we've gone there and we've either been lost somewhere that wasn't useful or somewhere that turned out to be a useful, reflective place. And then just wherever you are at that point, I would say, okay, that's the point to come back. Um, but Ultimately, in practice, of course, that kind of reflective, contemplative exploration is part of what will be included in what we're doing. And yet, it's very easy in the initial stages of a period of retreat or in one's practice, and you know, just acknowledging I don't know where you, you know, your, your practice framework and background, um, it's easy to kind of lean into that sense of, oh, there's something useful to be done here. And so I would encourage you to Restrain yourself with not not absolutely that it'll never happen because it will, but to just be willing to put that down and see. And occasionally there's something which is so so important it really does need attending to, but much of the time it just appears that way because the way our mind functions, and we will keep finding important things that need attending to if we orient that way. So again, there's an invitation to see what happens if I do put those things down. My own experience is that if they really are important, they will come back at another point where they can be engaged with. And if they don't ever, then maybe it wasn't needed any more than what happened. Thank you.
It's unusual in some places more than others that when there's an invitation for questions there are uh, long pauses. It's not a problem at all. But, uh, I see this one there. Perhaps. Yes, please. So the the point is that there are many thoughts called garbage thoughts at the beginning of a retreat which uh, you have described you're hanging on to even if they turn negative because you sense that you are afraid of the other side of it. Uh, which makes me very curious, what is the other side of the garbage thought? <laughs> and whether there are whether there is some help how to be with this in another way. What may I ask you a question? What makes you feel safe? Um, maybe it's easier for me to say what makes me feel afraid is that sometimes there's that period where some of the ego does get dropped and it's not a normal feeling. It's not something I have when I'm not yeah. And I think um, that scares me. Yeah. Going there scares me. And what makes me feel safe? Maybe this is a question to to take with you. You know, we we are all afraid. Yeah, uh, you're either enlightened or deeply neurotic if you're not afraid. Okay, <laughs> um, statistics speak against you. Yeah. So fear is a huge thing, and on the path, meeting fear is, is to be expected. So I deem that to be the most healthy response. Any growth of consciousness, any growth whatsoever, will have the stage where you meet things that are fearful. Um, indispensable, unpleasant, deeply scary, and uh, provoking reactivity, so we fall back onto things that help us control. Um, so that's why it is so important that you find out the things that make you feel safer. If you know how to generate this, then you have to, then you can, you will be less prone to fall back onto reactive securing patterns like controlling or hanging onto bad stuff because uh, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. <laughs> yeah. So ask yourself 
what, I, what can I trust right now at this moment? You know, does your pelvis hold? Does your spine hold? Does your body know how to breathe? Does your heart beat? Can I trust that? Chances are that you can. You know, there's some cellular intelligence going on in these bodies. You know. Prefrontal cortical experiences, 150,000 years old. You know, it's kid stuff. But these bodies, they they got a four billion years of cellular intelligence. So can I trust something right now is what it boils down to. You will only, like, if your resem experience resembles mine, I only want willing to face my fears if I have something that secures me. I need things to be safe before I can go to places where it's dicey or dangerous or risky or just quivering. Yeah? So do ask yourself, what is it that makes it safe for you to be right now here? Don't try to push past this edge, but just to look, where is the safety? In preferably in your body in this situation in the here and now and you will find a natural inclination to let go of thinking that is not peaceful or that doesn't make you happy yeah just my two cents So the question is about beginner's mind and whether it's possible and useful to sustain it. And I just ask you to say, I mean, you alluded a little bit to openness, but what do you mean when you use that phrase, beginner's mind? It's been, it has lots of different articulations. And uh, what does it mean for you? I'm not asking you to be definitive. Well, what are you meaning by that? Not having pre-conditions, being being open to surprise and activity, yeah. growing, learning, changing, all yeah. of those processes. But the question is, can you sustain yeah. that throughout your practice? So as to the value and the, or the possibility and the value of sustaining a sense of openness and freshness and in a way being relatively free of expectation and um, anticipation, it would sound like. Um, there, I think it's certainly possible to keep coming back to that place. It's probably unlikely that for many of us we won't find ourselves leaving it on occasion. And it's almost like a natural process whereby as we start to understand something, it's useful that we have some learning from our past, but we need to also learn not to hold that in front of us as we walk into the next or move into the next experience because then we don't see what's coming we kind of want to carry it a little bit beside us or even let it drag behind a little bit so it's there if we need to refer to it so there is a place for the learning of the past and the the skills and the wisdoms that brings but there is a quality that and there is a real value in continuing to sustain that orientation because if we don't, what easily happens is what we've learned and understood so far starts to become something which our practice, the way I 
envisage it as if we bang a peg into the ground and tie ourselves to it and walk around it and around it and around it. And it might be great, but we don't go any further. So there's something about the willingness to say yes to what we have learnt and understood and draw from it what is of benefit and actually not to imagine we've already learnt all there is to learn about this that I've just understood or anything else. And one of the, I think, delightful characteristics of the path of insight is one regularly comes to points or occasionally or just now and then, I don't want to set up an expectation here, but certainly over the sweep of years and decades where one realises that, oh, what I thought I really understood, I realise now, now I understand it and then I didn't. And after you've done that a few times, you also realise, oh, the sense of now I think I understand it, at some point down the track I'll realise, oh, I didn't really yet fully understand it even then. So when that sense of now I understand it, one holds with, oh, there is a deeper understanding, but it's not the end of that process. And I think being open to that possibility is what allows that sense of freshness, openness to stay there. It's like, yes, and just putting three dots after it rather than an exclamation mark. Dot, dot, dot. Yes, and... Okay, let's see. Please. So the question is, um, one of the experiences is boredom and the request whether I could elaborate on some what could be done about it. Well, I have bad news for you. (laughs) Boredom in my sort of meditation teacher's ears translates as I have an expectation that is here and I have an event happening that is here and this is just not good enough for my precious attention. Okay? And the discrepancy is a psychological condition called boredom. So do inquire what you expect try to be honest with you what you basically want. The boredom is always an indication that I do not get what maybe is an undeclared expectation, but it's definitely uh, under par, okay? It doesn't meet my expectations and I'm experiencing a resulting anti-climax, you know? I'm here and where are you? Is this really it? Um, You know, what's next? Or often, if you begin to become curious, what's going on there? You see, boredom is a an unpleasant condition, and human beings are famous for doing uh, incredible things to get out of that condition: hurting others, hurting themselves. Uh, engage in high-risk behavior, uh, take up bad habits. Um, You've probably read that Boston Globe article about the study. Two and a half years ago, people people were asked to sit in a chair and just think something for 15 minutes. Don't even meditate, just think. But they weren't allowed to read, 
to move, to play with their smartphones or just something. And then there was this contraption um, that was giving electric hits. It was not dangerous, but it was clearly unpleasant. They were demonstrated uh, the extent of the unpleasantness and they were left in that chair with that device. And Two-thirds of the men and one-third of the women found it so unpleasant to just sit in a chair and think something of their own choosing that they have preferred using that device within those 15 minutes to do something of which they knew that it was going to be unpleasant. One guy used it 90 times in 15 <laughs> So there's obviously something that is deeply disturbing about boredom, so much so that we're willing to do things that are positively unpleasant, that we know are unpleasant and that are even repeatedly used. So we are a strange we, we are strange creatures. So you I'm sure you're in good company with your So ask some question, you know, what is missing? What would I like? What is needed? If I hover with this for a while, maybe something comes up. Mostly my boredoms have to do with sadness or with restlessness or with unacknowledged things. So if I hover with them rather than try to get rid of them, they generally reveal themselves. They're quite yielding usually. Yeah, yeah so good luck. <laughs> I think I'd just like to briefly add a piece which for me is really helpful to contemplate with regard to this particular process of the meditative um, journey and how that invites and almost compels the experience of boredom for many of us is that the way our, our world operates it kind of has amplified the levels of intensity of stimulation the volume and the speed and the frequency and the multiplicity of experience and it's like our, our sensitivity systems can only deal with that by numbing themselves or shutting themselves down. And so when we come into a situation where there's much less input, much less going on, initially it feels like there's nothing here. Because what's here, I can't quite feel. And to be able to, and willing to sit in the place which is uncomfortable, unpleasant, unwanted, where I'm not getting much of a resonance from what's happening, actually part of what that does, it allows the sensitivity of the system to start to, actually light up again and I think what starts off as often boring or something that doesn't touch us when we've allowed the sensory sort of receptors the sensory system to become alive fully again starts to become much more nourishing and um, stimulating even delightful simple things and I think as a, as a process to understand that we're we're needing to deal initially here with the effect of overstimulation for most of us in terms of our systems and what they can really handle. And, um, mm. and it's really worth giving the time and the space to that process of just allowing the sensitivity to return in a space where it's actually safe and respected for the system to be as sensitive as it actually is, but which we can't always handle it being that sensitive in the midst of what is sometimes not entirely a sane situation in the world, it seems to me. Yes, please. Yeah. Do you want 
take that. Yeah, no. Well, you, I just spoke, so yeah, you take that one, I'll take the next one. <laughs> How would you recommend balancing self-compassion with discipline? Why? Is there an or in there? How to balance self-compassion? or How do you recommend balancing self-compassion with discipline? I would wish them not to be juxtaposed. <laughs> you find your mind watering too much, or you find yourself napping through meditation sessions. This is not something addressed with self-compassion. Okay, this is addressed primarily with honesty. You know what's happening now. Um, consider that you're beginning a retreat. Sleepiness is a normal part of the beginning of a retreat. If you come from an ordinary busy life and you land here and you're trying to switch schedules, it's to be expected that you will be going through phases of restlessness and sleepiness. Um, just soberly acknowledge that this is sleepiness and try to work with that sleepiness, primarily by acknowledging the somatic quality of sleepiness. Where in the body do you feel sleepy? Yeah. Do you have a vocabulary for somatic sensations around sleepiness? How do you actually notice that you're sleepy? What, is, what are the phenomena of sleepiness? Begin to investigate that. Obviously, sleepiness is a tricky one because, um, you know, when there's greed and aversion, usually at some point you notice this. Sleepiness has deprives you of the tools to notice. You know, it affects the very laboratory setting which is there to actually help you investigate sleepiness. It just looks peace peaceful. Yeah. Isn't this what it's all about? Yeah. Pull the blanket a little up. And think back of a soft spot in my life and just kind of curl in curl into it. Yeah. So um Compassion is not probably the most appropriate tool. Let's just acknowledge that this is normal that you go through sleepiness, and yet it takes some. It takes a kind of appropriate type of effort. Yeah? Meeting is how can I uh, acknowledge sleepiness without feeding it? That means probably going against the comfort-seeking pattern. I would just like to roll up into the sleepiness. Yeah. If your sleepiness looks like mine, then uh, I want to get in there when it's here. I, I don't want to have it gone, so and be bright and awake. Or I just want to kind of lean into it and savor it. So you will need to probably intervene in some way with that pattern. Compassion as a background quality is useful, but it it needs more specificity. You know, what is my intention? Can I raise my posture? Can I deepen my in-breath? Can I open my eyes? Chances are that this goes all against the pattern. Yeah? Um, and you will find if you're willing to bear some of this, and if you're looking for the attunement in the amount of effort, and that attunement is crucial because too much effort will just bring you into sort of oscillating, pull yourself together, fall asleep, pull yourself together, fall asleep pattern. That attunement is crucial. So 
allow yourself to be sleepy without fueling that sleepiness without saying yes to the sleepiness you actually say yes this is how it feels and yes i would like to wake up do i make sense you see in a few days you will have different brands of sleepiness the sleepiness at the beginning of a retreat is not something that you need to worry about it's a sleepiness that will probably you'll emerge very likely after your metabolism has adopt, adapted to the schedule and to the rhythms. Um, then you will get another brand of sleepiness, which is in many ways more interesting and maybe also more pernicious. You know, It's the sleepiness that needs investigating. The sleepiness at the beginning of a retreat mainly needs finding a skillful response. Just sleep as much as you can. Preferably not in the hall, but in your break and at night. And here, make your intentions clear. You've given up things to be here. So rather than doing, doing your time here half asleep, you're actually wishing to understand something about the nature of your heart. And then find very practical tools. So raising your arms is very effective. Just doing this. Try for a moment. Yanai teaches that a lot. Just even when you think you're awake, you may do this and find actually I can be more awake. <laughs> you know? uh, we do not fall asleep all in one go. The first sense that falls asleep is the sense of equilibrium. Okay? So somatically. The last sense to fall asleep is your hearing. So that from that follows on, if you want to practice with sleepiness, then you need to look what your body does. Sleepiness begins sometimes in the mind, if the energy is gone, and sometimes in the body, but the manifestation will always be in the body. You, know, you will sense it around your eyes. You know, People have very individual phenomena of sleepiness, but they can be investigated. Once you recognize them, it's easy to do something about it. The problem is we don't want to have it. Because we don't want to have it, we don't pay attention to it. Even if it starts arising, we pretend it's not happening. And when we can't deny anymore that it is happening, often our choices are quite limited. So the first is, is to, to allow that it is happening. And then you learn what you can do. Raise your chest, deepen your in-breath, open your eyes, hold up your arms. Pay close attention. For me, it's this part here which does reveal the body that goes to sleep. So if I pay attention there, my chances are better that I can counteract it. I am sorry if this is more detailed than you wanted to hear. <laughs> so maybe we'll just take us one more. Yes. Well, um, the observation is, and I think accurately for many of us, that when the thoughts are pleasant, they are a little harder to let go of, or to even notice one is in, because there isn't any overt suffering in the experience of, it seems, of thinking pleasant thoughts. And, uh, you know, there's many 
delightful reminiscences or fantasies we might find our mind generating. Having noticed that that's what goes on, of course, it's then useful to be able to just be interested to notice when it starts, if it or when it becomes pleasant, and just saying, oh, this is pleasant. And actually just tuning into that aspect of it. So it's not like you're trying to stop the thinking or push it away, but just, oh, this is pleasant, this is pleasant. And we see how the, I like it, I like it, I want it. You're going to take this away from me? No, no. And it's like, oh, look look at that. How, how much we seem to sometimes want or need this kind of little hit of some sweet thing. And it's like, oh, we can be compassionate for that. I don't want to lose that or let that go. We can, that part of us that wants that. Um, but at the same time, just being clear, oh, this is a form of becoming lost. And of course, many you know, patterns of thinking that begin as a lovely ride, you know, we catch a train, it goes through some beautiful scenery, and then at some point it goes around a left turn and the bridge is washed out and it's a train wreck. And it's interesting how many pleasant thinking patterns end up in that place without having to analyze why exactly that is the case. Just notice where you can and when you can. Oh, this is what's happening. And there's a bit of a patterning showing itself. And from there, whatever you can do to just, okay, notice that it's pleasant. And that sense of pleasantness felt in the body means one starts to come back already into the body. Okay, can I breathe with this experience for a moment? And then maybe in breathing, can I turn my attention more fully to the breath and the body? And it's not somehow that the thought goes away, but by being in touch with the felt sense associated with it, which is where the pleasure often is, we don't actually need the thought for it. It's just, oh, there's a sense of relaxation or ease or brightness in the heart and mind. And we've mistaken the pleasurableness of that for somehow being dependent upon the story the mind is generating from a bright place. When the mind's not in a bright place, it doesn't tend to generate a bright, pleasant story. And so actually noticing the tonality of the mind and heart and how that's reflected and expressed in the body is again a good pathway back. And all of that is part of what, again, we'll spend more time exploring, working with and, and guiding the particular processes in more detail as we continue with the retreat. And the invitation here would be, when you're able to just notice it and put it down, come back, do that. If not, then spend a little bit more time with the felt sense of what's happening. Not regarding it as a mistake or a failure, but just something here to understand. Okay? Good, thank you. And I think, shall we say, it's actually quarter to now, quarter to four, and um, what our intention for this was, if we'd come to this time, was that uh, it's a walking time now, there's um, 30 minutes for walking and then there'll be a a sitting at 4.15. But if there's anyone who has a specific question or concern with regard to posture, who'd like to just pause and wait, it might be that quite a few of you want to stay back, but most of you have done some of this before and you've probably attended to some of those questions. So thinking particularly for those of, who are new, but not exclusively. If you have something specifically you'd like to ask or have a little attention to, um, you're very welcome just to pause a moment and we'll... Um, We'll check in with with that. But for everyone else, time for some walking.
And uh, it seems a rather lovely sunny afternoon continuing. So I think in just uh, taking a little time to talk about posture, the first thing to say is that although we'd really love to be able to show you the way to sit for vast extended periods of time with you know, no discomfort or effort involved, the nature of our body is such that for most of us we will encounter at times weariness and at times discomfort in sitting still. And there's no perfect posture, but there are principles that can be really helpful with that. And primary one being what we've talked about, sense of contact with the earth being in not, not sort of um, kind of floating in our relationship to the ground so that the, this weight and strain of the, the body sitting up is supported well by the earth. And um, it might be that rather than sort of a, a long sort of piece on all the good things that we could say, if anyone has any, anything particular, that, particularly if you're really struggling with something, there will be small groups happening um, from tomorrow, which is further opportunity for questions. But if anyone's really struggling with being able to sit in some form of sitting posture, we, we'd really be you know, interested to hear and hopefully give you some guidance with regard to that. Or anything that you really just don't quite know how to handle or deal with in your experience to do with physical pain or something else. Okay, so I'll start there. I'm, I'm picking up a few, yeah. Do you have any history of injury or vulnerability specifically with that region? Okay. Okay, great. Um, no, yeah, um, I'm glad there's no history in terms of injury. Most of us actually aren't that practiced in supporting our own body weight because most of how we learn to sit is in chairs that don't actually encourage that. 
it can sometimes be helpful to move a little further forward on the chair if you want to allow the body to find its natural upright posture or if you feel you need a bit of support to put something in behind the lower back can sometimes be helpful with that but what you might also want to think about is how you place your hands and just see what it's like to as you have placing them on your on your thighs just see what it's like to move them a little forward the hands a little further towards the knee or a little f back towards the hips and just see because there's a place for many of us that we'll find where it actually just gives a little support. Without, If it's too far forward, it'll tend to pull the body forward. And if it's too far back, it more just opens the shoulders, but it doesn't actually take any weight, which is, has its value. But at a certain kind of place, it gives a little support. It creates a bit of a triangle for the torso, just gently. That may give you some support with extra support with the lower back. May I suggest something? It looks like it would be good for you to have something underneath your feet. You, you, you don't have much foot contact because of size. The chair is not mm. very favorable for your body size. So you could put something at least four centimeters. You know, ergonomically, this would help you to have a little bit of weight on your feet and that would take pressure off your lower back. Hmm. So a folded blanket or a meditation cushion, and they make sure that you feel your heels. Hmm. Yeah? That allows you control of your pelvis if you have a little weight. Yeah? So as Janai suggested, come forward a little bit. And that means that some weight on your legs allows you to actually control your pelvis better. Yeah? That can help you to adjust your, the small of your back where you have the strain and you will find the easiest position. Yeah. In a similar way, like I find that I'm using too much tension or something, you know, like I start to tense up in my back after a little while. Uh, so I'm, I'm not quite sure how to be, you know, in, in, the, in a way that's going to, you know, allow me to sort of rest upright. Yeah, yeah. Well, I suggest just, I, I notice it looks like your bench is slightly at an angle to your pelvis. It might be worth just straightening it out, getting it square. Um, and see what it's like if you just breathe fully into your abdomen. The sense of the posture is supported by a kind of an, a kind of a, a, one teacher I once met described it as like a bowling ball on a pile of bricks on a walking stick. Just gives you some idea of how it goes out of shape really easily. Yeah. It's really heavy up here, a whole lot of bricks, and then a, a curved shape. Um, the kneeling posture is one that actually often gives a really good support for the back. Sometimes what we get is we just feel the places in our body where we're not used to doing the kind of work of sustaining a posture. Yeah, I'm, I'm carrying a lot of tension. Okay. In general. Right, okay. So, so some of what we encounter is not due to the posture, but yeah. due to what's actually in the body, which might limit the posture's ability to express itself in a really supportive way. But um, it might be useful just to see, again, what happens if you, if you breathe in, feel, let the body open, and the, and the shoulders to kind of just uh, 
open and drop a little bit at the back. So you're opening the front of the body. It, it's something that, in a certain way, is kind of vulnerable to let the front of the body be open. And we tend to subtly want to shut that down because these are the bits you don't want wild animals to get hold of, at least, you know, in our up till relatively recent history, that was something to worry about. And so we tend to close in on it. And just to notice if there's a tendency to do that might be, might be useful there. Um, I don't see anything else, obviously, without... I don't know, I don't know if you... You may want to experiment putting a cushion on your lap and placing your hands so that you don't have to carry your hands. Yeah. Just to take the weight of your shoulders. Yeah, yeah? yeah a little more robust and more reliable but this is the principle and to just kind of so that you can let your arms be carried rather than your shoulders having to hold them just experiment I have a pain in the middle of my thoracic spine and I can't tell whether it's just because I'm not used to sitting up straight or whether I'm overextending in some way. Mm. Show us what you do. Mm. Mm. May I suggest that you sit more forward on your cushion rather than on top of it. Think of it as a wedge rather than as a, a kind of a, a cushion. Yes, yeah. Um, possibly even a higher cushion yeah. or something underneath it so that you have more lift. Yeah, yeah? that yeah. might take some of this away yeah. but the truth is as Jana already has alluded you may do everything right and it still hurts mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. so parts of our body if you're not doing lots of this will take take a moment to get used to yeah it will become easier yeah and just looking it's hard to tell because these mats that we're sitting on which are very comfortable I'm not sure how much contact you've got at the knee or what, what does it feel like for your lower legs? Where, where does it feel firmly in contact? Is it on my calf? Right through up to the kind of pretty close to the knee. Um, but yeah, no, that, okay, that's fine. That's good. Yeah, if it, if it was, if it didn't feel like it was so much in contact back down to there, then you might want to put something under your knee. But I don't think it needs it. It's just hard to see with these sort of quite soft mats. Yeah, and again, just the hand posture sometimes, yeah, just bringing them out might be supportive in some way. But experiment with it. You can move them around sometimes and see. Yeah. Are there more questions or? Yeah, okay. Your foot go would well, be the first question. It's, I'm not sitting on it. It's fine. But Look, it feels that, that it's just pointed a bit too much. Okay, so yeah, so I've sprained my ankles running on occasions through my life, um, and my ankle movement isn't quite as much as it once was. So it may have a similar thing. 
particularly if your surgery is recent, it might be that your ankle isn't entirely happy to be stretched out quite as much as it is. And what you might want to do is just find a little, like a sock or something, and just put it under the crook of the joint. So if I show you with this, I can't quite angle it right, but so that it's not being forced out like that. But if you put something in it, it just gives it... So it'll want to be... Yeah, you can feel how it allows the ankle to be slightly more flexed. That, that, that might do it. And whether you're above or not is, is very much dependent on how far forward you come on the cushion, how high it is and how flexible all the joints are. But that looks all right. And never forget, your ankle is the expert, okay? But strangely, it's the good Well, of course, if your posture is having to compensate for the yeah. loss of mobility in another joint, then it puts extra stress on everything else. And so to be really careful with both the, the well one and the one that's recently been uh, sort of had the work. Yeah. What becomes difficult? Can we be more specific? A higher cushion would probably make it, would minimize on the stretch. Um, they tend to become more dexterous if you use them. Yeah, so uh, to state the obvious. Uh, if you have a little more height of your cushion, it is very likely that it will be more bearable. See whether you negotiate with the pain. Okay, so can I breathe into this for five more minutes? Can I give ten more breaths? And then when you find this is too intense, you change. Quietly, in a negotiated way. And then the count begins at zero again. So important is if you shift posture that you don't go into a fidgeting mode. Yeah. So we want two things. We want to, be, to look after your body. So pain is to be welcomed as a sign that something ought to be taken care of. And we don't want to gratify reactive impulses. Yeah. So just if it's painful, move away from it quickly. And, yeah. So... So we want to take care of both of these things. The first one means that if you have pain, you will probably need different strategies to be with that pain. Yeah? And at some point, the pain may be such that you want to change posture in a negotiated and calm way without gratifying impulses of restlessness or just twitching away from discomfort by continual shifting. So the negotiation piece may be quite useful. Uh, make sure that you alternate legs so which one is front and which one is back preferably every hour yeah so e you will have a better and a worse side and it's particularly important that you practice the worse side it will 
otherwise always stay that way. Yeah. And if you feel that there is too much pain, then you make a calm and mature decision that you're now changing your posture. Yeah. That's perfectly all right. And perhaps the one marker that I would suggest you might find useful, if you feel you can bring some degree of softening or relaxing to the tendency to contract against the pain, it's probably fine to be staying with it. And so long as when you change your posture, the pain goes away quite quickly. Yeah. If you can no longer not, you can no longer counterbalance the urge to contract around it, that's a sign it's getting beyond what's wise to stay with. And if when you change the posture, if you're still hobbling 10 minutes later, next time, change it earlier, would be my, yeah. uh, even five minutes later. Err on the side of gentleness with your body. Um, that's not what we learnt from our teachers, probably, mm. certainly. And uh, some of us learnt the hard way that um, just gritting one's teeth isn't actually the best response. I think it's as it's just after four o'clock now and the sitting will begin in just over 10 minutes. It's probably good that we conclude this now. Um, if anyone was left with something, um, perhaps let us know. And as I said, there will be um, small group meetings beginning tomorrow for half of you. I don't know whether you will be in one of those, but certainly those who are in the, the newer end of practice experience will be having group yeah. interviews tomorrow. So there'll be some further chance to talk about what's happening. And, with your body. Good. Okay. Thank, Thank you. Thank you.
Good, it is time for a walking period. Um, Jan I will be with you after the dinner here at for the 6.45 sit and uh, practice well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.